Me to uh, Romans chapter 8. And at verse 28, it may seem like we are taking a bit of a snail's pace uh, through Romans 8, and I suppose that's, that's true. Um, there's a reason for that. Uh, so Romans 8 is, is uh, you know, what, what you know, some, uh, some consider, many consider to be the sort of the, the mountain peak of the book of Romans, the, the great... Uh, pinnacle, the greatest chapter in the greatest book of the Bible, and so I, I've, I've wanted to to uh, linger on these beautiful truths and the beautiful teachings in Romans eight, and to spend a little time there to to take them in, not to just sort of pass them by. And uh, so that's why we're going a little bit slower. We will pick up the pace uh, when we get to Romans nine. Not that Romans nine isn't important, but but I'm just saying Romans eight. It's, it's a little, little bit more slow paced. And I say that by way of introduction, just to let you know that we're only doing one verse today. Um, my plan is to do Romans eight twenty eight to thirty. We're going to do Romans eight verse twenty eight, and the next week we'll look at verses twenty nine and thirty. So we, we we we'll get there. We'll get through the book. It's just taking a little bit of time. So. Romans 8, uh, I'll read verses 28 to 30, but we're only going to focus on verse 28 this morning. Let's uh, bow together as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word. Lord God, how good it is to gather in your house and, and to worship you. We, we praise you. We honor you. We, we thank you, O Lord, for revealing yourself to us through your word. And we thank you, Lord, for the, the, the beautiful truths that we find in, in this great chapter in Romans 8. And I pray now this morning, O oh Lord, that you would speak to us uh, through this, uh, this important and this familiar and this cherished verse of the Bible. I pray that you would give us not only a proper understanding, but that you would speak to us just as your spirit would have us uh, spoken to. Lord, for some of us who may be going through difficulties and hardships, I pray that you would speak deep words of comfort and hope and strength and encouragement this morning. And so we offer ourselves to you, and I pray that you would do your work in us for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Romans 8, like I said, I'll read verses 28 to 30. But the focus will be on verse 28. Paul says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. You may be seated. In his uh, book titled River Out of Eden, uh, Richard Dawkins, the outspoken atheist, uh, expresses the, the sort of the, the secular worldly view of suffering and evil. This is what he writes in his book. He says, The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. 
In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to, to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it. The universe, he says, that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, nothing but pitiless indifference. In Dawkins' view, then, there is no purpose in suffering. It is just random and senseless. It is, as he calls it, an evil hiccup. And the best that we can do is to hope that the random spin wheel of, of suffering doesn't land on us. Well, the Bible, of course, presents a, a totally and completely different view of suffering. The Bible presents a picture in which there is a sovereign God at the helm of the universe. And, the, and this universe then operates under his design and, and, and according to his purpose. And as we'll see, the suffering that we endure as believers then is, is not random and it's not senseless. It is instead ordained and purposeful. And because it is purposeful, we, we have deep hope in the face of suffering. And so as we come to the, this uh, section in Romans, as we continue our, our study, we come to really one of, one of the most familiar and one of the most cherished verses in the whole Bible. Uh, Romans 8 verse 28 is a verse that, that offers hope in the midst of our trials and afflictions. And in this verse, uh, Paul continues his, his overarching theme, as we've been looking at this last several weeks, of, of suffering and glory. Just a, a little bit of review of where we've been. Paul has said how all of creation is groaning and suffering as it waits in eager expectation for this glorious day of redemption. And then Paul went on to say how we as believers are groaning along with creation as we, we wait in eager expectation for the redemption of our, of our bodies, for, that, for our glorification to come as well. And he said, as we looked at last week, that the Holy Spirit groans with us in our suffering, translating our groans into petitions that the Father perfectly understands. And now Paul goes on to show how God is working through our suffering for a good purpose. And so into all of the, the suffering and the brokenness and the evil of the world, all of the uncertainties that we face, Paul speaks this promise that God is doing something good. But if we are going to hang so much hope on this verse as, as, we, as we ought, we... we we should find deep hope in this verse, but if we're going to hang so much of our hope on this verse, we need to know what it really means. I think too many Christians have drawn from this verse a false hope based on a skewed understanding of what Paul says. And so, like I said, we're going to focus on verse 28 this morning. What does Paul really mean when he says that all things work for our good? We're going to first identify three things that he does not mean. And then we'll draw from this text, uh, from this verse, four observations to discern what he does mean. So we begin first with, uh, uh, by exploring three things that Paul does not mean. Number one, uh, Paul does not mean that all things naturally tend toward good. So, so Paul is not setting before us this sort of naively optimistic interpretation of history, that all things just sort of naturally work out in the end. It's simply not true that all things tend to work out for good, as if the world is inherently wired to, to right all the wrongs and to heal the pains that we encounter. 
I think some people take from these verses that the world is kind of like those, those punching dolls that are designed to always stand upright, right? So it doesn't matter how hard you hit it. It doesn't matter how many times you knock it down. It always rights itself and settles into that upright position with, this, with a smile on its face. And some people imagine that the world works that way. And we get knocked down, but it's okay because we always are going to land on our feet. And all things just naturally work out for our good. That's not what Paul means. It's just not true that all things tend to work out for good. In fact, remember what Paul said just a few verses earlier in Romans 8 when he said that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. And groaning, he said, uh, in hope that it will be liberated from its bondage to decay. And in our study of that verse a few weeks ago, we saw that the word decay carries with it the implication of disintegration and, and decline. And so the world was broken by human sin and is now in a state of degeneration. And so things don't just by nature come together for good. The world is utterly dependent on the sustaining hand of God and the redeeming work of Christ to put it right again. Apart from that, the whole system will just keep unraveling back into chaos and, and emptiness and loss. And so it is, it's not the, the natural course of things to, to work out for good. That's not what Paul means. The second thing that Paul does not mean is that there are, there are really no bad things in life. You, you get that sentiment a lot of times, I think, from people that, that, that come out of a wrong understanding of this verse. So, so Paul is not minimizing or dismissing the fact that bad things do happen. I think some people seem to take Paul's words to mean that bad things are really, really just sort of blessings in disguise. And sometimes people, well-meaning Christians will use these words of Paul in a way that only wounds those who are truly suffering. And so they, you know, sort of as a launching pad, for, uh, using this verse as a launching pad, unintentionally they, they fail to show compassion. They fail to come alongside those who are suffering and to join them in their suffering. And they offer this verse as a sort of platitude that in the end just sort of dismisses their suffering. And so they say things like, well, you know, this may seem like a bad thing, but, but remember, all things work together for good, and so really, this really isn't a bad thing. It just looks that way. It may seem that way, but remember, God's word says all things work for our good, so really, you just have to look for the good in this situation. Don't ever say that to somebody who is suffering. That's not only bad theology and a bad misuse of this this verse, but it is a painful blow to those who are suffering. I think Nicholas Walterstorff captured this idea so poignantly in his book, Lament for a Son. He was grieving the tragic death of his 25-year-old son who died in a, in a mountain climbing accident. And, and he said how painful it was when some people tried to minimize the, the badness of what happened. And so he said in his book, he said, please don't say that it's not really so bad because it is. If you think that your task as a comforter is to tell me that really all things considered it's not so bad, then you do not sit with me in my grief, but you place yourself off in the distance away from me. And over there you are of no help. 
What I need to hear from you is that you recognize how painful it is. I need to hear from you that you are with me in my desperation. To comfort me, you have to come close. Come sit beside me on my morning bench. I think those are such powerful words. I think many of us as Christians need to take heed of those words. And when people are suffering, to come and to sit beside them on their morning bench. We must not use these words of Paul to minimize or dismiss the pain of suffering and the badness of things that happen in our broken world. That's not what Paul is intending to convey with this verse. Bad things do happen. Life is not like that, you know, that, that song in that Lego movie. You've ever seen the Lego movie where everybody goes around singing, everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Everything is awesome when you're, when you're living our dream. No, everything is not awesome. Some things in life are just bad. It's bad when a hurricane wipes out an entire village. It's bad when your wife dies of cancer. It's bad when a, when a parent buries a child. These, these are just genuinely bad things. And the message of Paul is not to have us somehow twist them into something good. To sort of look for, the, well, there's a good in that thing. No, it's a bad thing. We are right to cry out against these things. We, we are right to feel the sting of them. You know, when, when Jesus uh, stood before the tomb of his, of his friend Lazarus, he, he didn't correct the people for their weeping, did he? John says that he wept with them. He entered into the pain of their weeping and he felt the, the pain of their anguish. He acknowledged the, the badness of what they were enduring. So Paul does not mean that all things considered, bad things really don't happen. The third thing that Paul does not mean in this verse is that fewer bad things will happen to those who follow Christ than, the, than to those who do not. I think some Christians tend to think that if we love God and serve him, then we, then we won't have as many bad things happen to us and that, that by and large we can expect to suffer less. That's not what scripture says. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble. Paul said to the Philippians, he said, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. It has been granted to you as a believer to suffer for Christ. The apostle Peter said, rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Look, the, the message of scripture is consistent that the path of discipleship is the path of suffering. In fact, right here in Romans 8, and just in, in a few verses uh, later, uh, Paul will go on to list all kinds of things that believers might endure in this life. He mentions trouble and hardship and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. We are not immune to any of these things. And the promise of Romans 8, verse 28, is not a promise of an easier life for Christians. If we draw out of this verse an expectation that life will, will be easier for us than for those who don't belong to God, then we, then we are, are setting ourselves up for, for, for massive disappointment. That's not what Paul means. 
Bad things will happen to Christians just like they happen to everyone else. Careers will be sabotaged. Diseases will debilitate. Accidents will happen. And trouble will come. So these are a few of the misinterpretations of this beautiful verse, a few of the things that Paul does not mean, but it then begs the question, well, what does he mean? In verse 28, there are, I think, four main parts to this verse, and so we're going to kind of walk through those parts together because we have to, uh, if we want to understand it, we have to understand what each of those parts means. So the first thing that we can observe is that is that uh, God is the one who works for our good. I think the NIV draws out the the proper sense of this, this verse helpfully when it says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Now, the, the word God, in the Greek text, that word God is not there. Uh, it just says, uh, you know, in all, thing, all things work for the good of those who love him. So, but but uh, in, the, in the context of this passage, the context makes it clear that God is very clearly the implied subject. God is the one who works all things together for good. And, and so uh, the, the good doesn't, it doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from sort of the, the natural course of things in creation. It, it comes only from the hand of God in his providence. I think the Heidelberg Catechism so beautifully captures the, the sovereign working of God in all things, in his providence, and, and question and answer 27. So the Catechism asks in question 27, what do you understand by the providence of God? And maybe we can all recite the answer together. I'll put it up on the screen. This is the answer that it gives. The Almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. It is God who makes all things work together for our good. God is the the great composer conducting all things with purpose. He is the master artist working through every stroke of the brush to create his good masterpiece. So God works. The second part of verse 28 is that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, when Paul says, hold on to your hats for this a minute because this will blow your minds. When Paul says all things, he actually means all things. That's what Paul means by it is an all-inclusive term. He doesn't mean just the good things or the pleasant things. He, he means all things. And so the all things of verse 28 includes then the sufferings of verse 17. And the groanings of verse 23. It means the beautiful things and the ugly things, the the happy things and the painful things, the the pleasant things and the bad things. What what Paul is saying is that nothing is beyond the overruling, overriding scope of God's providence. And going back to that word works, that in all things God works, uh, the word works is a translation of the Greek uh, verb synergeo, which may sound familiar because it's where we get the English word synergy. And so the Greek word synergeo literally means to work together, which is an important piece of this translation. 
And so what Paul is saying is that God makes every strand of experience in our lives, all of the the beautiful things that we enjoy and all of the painful things that we endure, he makes all, all things work together for our good. That's an important important way to understand the translation. It's not that all things work, work for our good. All things work together. God makes all, all, all human experiences, everything, all inclusive, all of it, he makes work together for our good in a synergistic kind of way. As one commentator said, God puts even evil to use on a large canvas, painting wars and floods, disease and depression into his purposes. And what is so hopeful about this is that if God is even working through suffering for our good, then, then our suffering is not meaningless. I mean, that, that changes everything about the landscape of suffering. Because if suffering is just, as Dawkins said, random and purposeless and, and meaningless, then, then, then what's the point? And then, and then it's just sort of this, this hopeless and, and we have nothing but, but hope that it doesn't happen and despair if it does. But if God is working through it for our good, then it's not meaningless. Contrary to Dawkins, our suffering is not random. It's not a product of pitiless indifference. It's not without purpose. The sovereign hand of God is at work in and through the suffering for a good that he knows even if we can't see it. I love the way John Piper put it. And this was uh, uh, a friend, a, a, a good friend sent, uh, sent me this, and I had seen it before, but sent, uh, when Lori and I were going through a, a real dark time last year, and, and uh, so there's a song by Shane and, Shay, uh, Shane, and Shane called uh, Though You Slay Me. And in the middle of that song, there's this quote by, by John Piper. It's a, a beautiful song. If you are in a season of suffering, I would encourage you to, to listen to it. But John Piper, in, in one of his sermons, which was included then in the midst of this song, says this. He says, not only is all of your affliction momentary and light in comparison to eternal glory that comes from 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so uh, John Piper is, is uh, commenting on that verse. Not only is all of your affliction momentary and light in comparison to eternal glory, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain, he says, every millisecond of your misery in in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory that you will get because of that pain and that suffering. So whether it is death or disease or, or persecution or rejection or depression or dementia, it's not meaningless. It's doing something. God makes all things work together for the good of those who love him. So nothing is beyond the the overruling, overriding scope of God's providence. And your suffering is not meaningless. It is purposeful. And that changes everything. The third thing that we see in this verse is that God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And so... This is important, again, so that the promise of good is not a universal promise. It's not a blanket promise for everyone. It is not a promise that that everything tends toward everybody's good in the end. 
This is a promise that is unique to God's called and chosen people. It is a promise only exclusively for believers. Only for those who belong to God in Jesus Christ. If you have rejected Christ, if if you have not embraced his truth, if you have not acknowledged his lordship over your life, then, then God is not making all things work together for your good. And and you need to know that. And so it begs the question this morning, are you you in Christ? Have you acknowledged him as your savior and as your Lord? That is the only possible way to receive this beautiful promise of hope in this verse. And if you have not received him as Lord, if you have not accepted him as savior and, and Lord of your life, then might this be the moment in which God is drawing you to himself. That that sort of mysterious tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God is the one who draws people to himself. we'll, We'll see that next week in that golden chain. God is the one who draws people to himself, but he does so through the means of human witnesses and 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 preaching and teaching and gospel sharing. Might this then be the moment in which God is drawing you to himself? Might this be the moment that he is awakening in you a living faith? And if so, then as the psalmist said, and as the writer of Hebrews quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The final thing that we see in this verse is that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. I've saved probably the most important piece for last. We have to be careful how we define the good of verse 28 because everything hangs in what Paul means by, by that word, by, by, by good. That's the key word in this cherished passage, and this is where so many go astray. You see, the problem is that our understanding of the good in verse 28 is it, it tends to be way, way too small. Way too small. We tend to think of the good in terms of earthbound goods like health and, and wealth and admiration and, and success. But, but, that, that, but Paul has, has far bigger things in mind. The good that Paul means is much bigger than any earthbound good. The good of verse 28 is our ultimate good from heaven's perspective. And we need to, to have that firmly planted in our minds if we're going to have a proper understanding and a proper hope drawn from this verse. In fact, Paul gives us a, gives us a little glimpse of what kind of good he ha- he's talking about in verse 29. So Paul says here in verse 28 that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And then we get to verse 29 and Paul sheds some light on what that That good entails, he says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so the specific good that God is doing in the context of Romans 8 verse 28, the specific good that God is doing in us is conforming us into the image of Christ. That's what God is doing. That's the good thing that he is doing. He is molding us and shaping us and working all things together for this purpose that we might share in the beauty and the glory of Jesus. You see, God knows that there is no higher good and there is nothing more supremely satisfying 
than for us to be like Jesus and to share in his glory. God knows that, that that is the highest good, that is the greatest good, that is the most supremely satisfying thing, and so he is working all things towards that good in us. Driving everything uh, in everything drives us to that end. This is why even suffering is part of the good that God is doing because it is through suffering that we know Christ more fully and are made to be more like him. Remember the prophet Isaiah spoke of Christ as a man of suffering and familiar with pain. And his whole mission on earth was a mission of suffering. The path that he agreed to walk in the eternal counsel of God was a path of suffering that led to the ultimate suffering at the cross. And so if we are going to experience the supreme good of becoming like Christ and and sharing in his glory, we will, by necessity, endure suffering. Which brings us back to verses 17 and 18 of Romans 8, where Paul said in verse 17, Now, if we are children, then we are co-heirs with Christ, if, indeed, we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And Paul went on to say in verse 18 that that glory far outweighs the suffering. In other words, the good that God is doing is, you know, is it worth it? Is, you know, so God is doing the good of making us more like Christ and sharing in his glory. Well, what's the, you know, I, I, want, I want money or I want health and give me health now. Is, is really glory with Jesus all that great? And Paul says, yeah, absolutely it is. He says, in fact, I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. A central part of the glory that will be revealed in us is the supreme joy of knowing Christ fully and being made to be like him. Which is why Paul was then able to say to the Philippians that he wanted to know Christ and and he wanted to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. He knew that even the, the painful experience of suffering was accomplishing in him the greater good of becoming more like Christ and sharing in his glory. He understood that the glory of Christ is something that is so rich and so substantial and so dazzling that it makes all earthly joys but a glimmer in comparison and the costliest of sufferings like nothing more than dust when weighed on the scale. God is working through all things for the good of making us more like Christ and sharing in his glory. And so God says to us in the words of one of John Newton's hymns, These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you may seek your all in me. So the good that God is accomplishing in us in all things is the supreme good of making us more and more like Jesus. This is our supreme joy and satisfaction, and it is a path of goodness that ends in breathtaking glory. And so when when we put this all together, we've sort of dismantled the, the verse. We've said what it doesn't mean, what it does mean, picked it apart. We put it all back together. We see that the promise of Romans 8, verse 28, is a big picture promise. Paul is saying that in and through all things, in the grand scheme of things, God is painting a glorious picture. 
And some of the brush strokes in that picture are, are violent and, and bold. And if you look at them all on its own, they're, they're, they're ugly and repulsive. But God is the master artist who is using those strokes, even the violent and the seemingly ugly and bold ones in the composition of his one glorious masterpiece. And all of the strokes work together in a synergistic way. All of the colors come together to make a picture more beautiful than if any one of those strokes was missing. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 8 verse 28. And what this means for us is that if we are believers, we can find deep comfort and hope and encouragement in these words. If you are a follower of Christ, then you can know that God is at work in your life. God God is working all the time in your life. And he is carrying out his sovereign purpose through all things, every strand of experience in your life. He is making all things work together for the supreme good of becoming like Christ and sharing in his glory because he knows that that is the most supremely satisfying thing. And so even our sufferings and our hardships and our afflictions are simply tools in the hands of a sovereign God achieving for us a supreme good and eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So about a month ago, I, I mentioned to you that we had rescued a little duckling out here in the church property. And that tiny duckling was, was like, like, like tiny. I mean, it was like it fit right in the palm of your hand as a little, little fluff ball. That, that tiny little duckling has now turned into this. A young drake mallard that will soon be able to fly. And with any luck, we'll fly right into my decoys come hunting season and end up in our freezer, <laughs> completing the circle of life. No, not really. We'll band them to make sure that if I see one with a band on, I don't shoot that one. The point is <laughs> that in our care for this duck, we keep him, so this is how we do it. We keep him in a bin in the garage at night with a heat lamp. And it has, the bin has all kinds of stuff for, that he needs. It has food in there. It has bedding in there. And it has a little water. And it has a little rock to sit on. And, 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 and so it's all prepared. So we keep him in a bin in the garage at night. And then we transfer him to this, this kiddie pool on our patio during the day so that he can, uh, you know, walk around and, and stretch his legs and, and swim and, and do all kinds of stuff that ducks are supposed to do. Well, the, the transfer from, so he, he goes from, you know, the, the bin to the pool and then from the pool back to the bin. And, the, and to do that, we have to capture him and put him in, a, in another bin and, and the transfer him is just absolutely traumatic. I mean, it, it is like the, wor- it, it is the, the worst thing that he's ever had to endure. He, he you know, he, uh, from his limited perspective and experience, all he knows of that transfer is suffering and affliction. And he struggles and he squawks and he tries to get away. He tries to escape the evil that is about to ensue. What he doesn't realize what he just can't see from his own limited understanding is that, that we are and have been from the beginning working in all things for his good. That, that's what we want for him. We don't want anything, everything, everything that we've done for him is, to try to, is, try, is for his good. 
We rescued him from the... And when, when I say we, by the way, yes, I, okay, if I, I mean Lori and the kids. I've, I've done basically nothing for this duck. So <laughs> Lori would correct me afterwards. So now I'm, I'm publicly saying, yes, it's been all, all them and not me. But still, it just sounds easier and better to say we. So we rescued him from the drain. I wasn't even there at the church work day, but still, hey, we, hey, <laughs> my family. So we rescued him from the drainage pit. We, we bought him uh, food. I did do that. And a heat lamp. I did that as well. Uh, I guess I did more than I thought. Uh, we created a habitat for him in the bin. We, you know, we did all these things. We got the, the pine needles for him, and we, we uh, protect him from the curious cats and the hunting dog who's made to go retrieve mallards and, and ducks. We bought him a pool so he could stretch his legs and swim. And we were doing all of this in an effort to bring him to the ultimate end of a life of glory in one of the ponds in Sherwood that's filled with all kinds of other ducks. Well, that, I think, is just a faint glimmer of what God is doing in us. For those who love God and have been called according to his purpose, God makes all things work together for the good of transforming us into the glorious image of his son. And even those things that from our limited understanding and perspective seem like they can only be afflictions and only be painful. And, and how can there be any, you know, this is, you know, even, even in through those things, God is working for his good purpose in our lives. That is the promise of Romans 8, verse 28. Uh, Tim Keller, I think, summed it up in a very helpful way. He said, the bad things are being worked together for good. The good things can never be lost. And the best things are still to come. To God be the glory. Let's bow together. Lord God, we praise you for this, this beautiful promise of hope in Romans 8, verse 28. Lord, give us a proper understanding and from that proper understanding, give us a deep and abiding and living hope and encouragement. Lord, in this time of silent response, I pray especially, Lord, for those who are in seasons of hardship, in seasons of suffering and affliction and doubt and uncertainty. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would breathe into them in this moment of silence a deep and living hope that you are sovereign, that you are making all things work together for the good of those who love you. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would breathe that hope into us this morning. Lord, hear our silent prayers of response.
Lord Jesus, we are your disciples. And we know, O Lord, that you walked the path of suffering that led to the cross. And you call us, O Lord, to to walk with you, to follow in that same path of suffering. So, Lord Jesus, draw us ever nearer as we labor through the storms that you send our way. You've called us to this passage, and we'll follow, though we are worn. May our journey bring a blessing. May we rise on wings of faith. And at the end of our heart's testing, with your glorious likeness, let us wake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to